Well, it is great to be back, uh, back with you after being away. I'm glad you've all behaved yourselves, so I'm told. And thanks to Kevin and Spyro for keeping it all going. So, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to look at John chapter 8, where there's this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. And it's all rather interesting, and what Jesus says about, about her afterwards. Right, so that's what we're going to do. So let's, uh, let's start off with our prayer requests. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you through the Lord Jesus to thank you that we're all together again in our church here in the pub, and we thank you for being with us. And we pray that you will give your spirit to us this day, that you will fill us up, and that you will guide each of us to salvation at the end of the day, to eternity, with you and with your Son and your kingdom. We pray that Jesus will come soon, even in our lifetime. And as we wait, Father, we bring before you all the stuff in our lives and in the lives of those near and dear to us. Please be with that sister Ludmilla in Holland and those baptised back in Australia. And please help Mark in running his, uh, his church now uh, there in Perth in Australia. We pray for the homeless and that we might be a light in the darkness of this lonely world to other people. Please give us meetings this week with people whom we can help to you and to your son. People in whose lives we can make an absolute difference. And we pray for those meetings, Father. You know what we're like, we're all shy, we're a bit on the back foot, nervous about our faith. We pray that we may not be like that and that we will lead people into our lives. And we pray you'll open our eyes to the passage of scripture that we want to look at and that as we think about your son and his words and actions on this earth, we pray that we might be like him, that his spirit, his way, might be in us for his sake. Amen. Amen. Right, so we're going to have a look at John chapter 8, and this is an incident where you've got, like in this chapter, you've got Jesus giving a very long sort of talk to the Jews, but that's sort of introduced by him um, actually being asked to judge on the case of a woman who is, they say, caught in adultery. Right, so Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning at dawn, he came... So he again went down into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought and dragged a woman caught in the act of adultery. And having placed her before him, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, so they might have some reason to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger right on the ground as though he had the knot. Well, this is like a kangaroo court. And in the law of Moses it said that if a, if someone is, uh, if a married woman is caught uh, committing adultery, she must be stoned. And the people who stone her, first of all, must be the witnesses. That's why they say... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So these guys are all saying, we are the witnesses. We busted them. We sprung them. And our story 
seems a bit of a setup. Um, yeah, I guess she was committing adultery, but all these guys uh, witnessed it. Um, it all seems a bit of a setup, really. And it says they said this to test him. Because what they were going to do was say, oh, if you say, oh, we don't need to stone her, you're not faithful to the Lord Moses. But if Jesus said, oh, yeah, well, let's stone her then. Come on, let's do it. The Romans alone had the power of the death penalty. That's why when they killed Jesus, they needed to get the Romans to agree it. So they thought, whatever way he answers, he's going to be in trouble. If he says stone her, we can say, oh, but the Romans don't allow you to do that. If we say, if he says, oh, no, better off, oh, he's breaking the law of Moses. So they thought they were so clever. So he writes with his finger on the ground. Now, this is the Middle East. 2,000 years ago. So he would have been writing in the dust. As though he heard them not. And we want to know, because we are curious, we want to know what he wrote. He doesn't say what he wrote. He wrote with his finger on the ground like he didn't hear them. Well, if I ask you, in the Old Testament, where does it talk about writing with a finger? You normally write with a pen, not with a finger. And it's the giving of the law of Moses. Moses goes up to the mountain and he comes down from the mountain, like Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives, and he's got the tables of stone with the Ten Commandments that are written with the finger of God, it says. Now, you see the parallel. He comes down from the mountain and he writes with his finger. He's giving a new law. They say Moses said according to his law, she's got to be stoned. And he's writing something with his finger in the dust. As though he heard them not. Well, I have thought about this and I've read around it and so forth. And um, the explanation that I like most is that if somebody was deaf, deaf and dumb in those days, and you spoke to them, and you didn't realize they were deaf and dumb, the guy would write with his finger on the ground. I'm deaf, I didn't hear what you're saying, mate. Somebody comes to you and you're deaf, they start talking to you, I can't hear you. And they would write on the ground. So that's why it says, with his finger he wrote on the ground as if he didn't hear them, as if he was deaf. She committed adultery. We saw her. We caught her in the act. And he's like, I'm deaf. Sorry, mate, what did you say? I don't hear you. Just remember that. But when they continued asking him, he stood up and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, the dust. And they, when they heard it, went out one by one, beginning from the eldest to the last, and Jesus was left alone with the woman, with her still standing in the middle. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one. And, she, and Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. Walk your way from this time forward, sin no more. So, what's going on here? He's twice. He stoops down and he stands up. This is the idea of death and resurrection. 
And he says, well, where are your accusers? He, whatever he wrote in the dust, yeah, it was saying, look, I'm deaf, I'm not hearing what you're saying. But I wonder if what he wrote in the dust was their sins. For example, he wrote Benjamin or whatever <laughs> equals Rivka. You know, if this one of these guys had slept with a woman called Rivka, well, he put it down. And one by one, they think, oh, hang, this guy knows all the women I slept with. Oh, whoops. And here I am about to condemn this woman who was caught in adultery. Yikes. And they all leave one by one. It must have been something like that. Because they all go out, convicted by their conscience. And then Jesus stood up, and I'm suggesting this is a bit like his resurrection, because he keeps saying he's, he went down, and now he stands up. And he says, well, and where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? She said, nobody. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. In the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, he very often seems to allude to things in John's Gospel. And I think you have an example here, because he says, Paul says there, who is he that, that, that accuses you? There is, we, are, we have nobody who accuses us. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus is our judge. We are free from accusation. And he also says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he's got this incident in mind. And he's saying, just like that woman, she had no accusers. She was justified by Jesus. And just as he said, you're not condemned. So we are free from condemnation. In other words, that woman is every one of us. And we are free from accusation. <clears throat> That's an amazing thing, because if you talk to people about their anxiety and depression or one thing or another, why they feel mixed up and all that, everyone's worried what everyone else thinks. Now we all say, oh no, I don't care, I don't care what you think. But everybody does. And it's not just youngsters of my kids' age who sort of worry, oh, if I haven't got night trainers or I haven't got this or that, oh, people are going to think I'm weird. Everyone's the same. We're scared of each other. <laughs> we know what I'm saying. Everyone's frightened of each other, you know? Um, you didn't make it in life. Nobody made it in life. It didn't work out. Your marriage, your family life is not apparently as it should be. Your kids, well, didn't quite make it. Or your grandkids didn't quite make it. Or this didn't work out. Or that didn't work out. Or didn't quite make it in your career. Or you didn't make it oh, one way or another. And we feel that accusation. That um, I, am, I am judged by you. That's how everybody feels. And that is how it is. As you walk down the street and it's like sort of you know, been on the, what do you call it, on the, on, the, uh, on the fashion walk, on the catwalk, you know? That everybody's like, oh, you know, that, that's not how it should be, oh, you're, you're a failure. You know, you see all these adverts of these handsome blokes and beautiful women, and you think, well, <laughs> we can't all be as uh, whatever as that. And, you know, and, and it's, people pick up all this false crap in the beauty is inside. Right, I agree. But even, even more than that, we are free from 
accusation. This is the point. Where are your accusers? They're all a bunch of sinners. Uh, whoops, they've all gone off. And then Jesus says, well, I don't condemn you. And he, of course, is the only one who can condemn. This is why Paul says, it's a very small thing. He's writing to the Corinthians. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Because there is one who judges me, and that is the Lord. So if there is one who judges you, and that is the Lord Jesus, well, quite what other people think is not such, a, is not such an item. But for those who don't have this relationship with Jesus Christ, who don't know him personally, oh, it matters. What do you think of me matters. Oh, yeah. And I've got to make myself look beautiful. And this is the myth of things like Facebook, you know, social media, where you present an image of yourself. You, you, you take your best photo and you put your best photo up. And there you are, maybe on holiday or somewhere or other in a pub or something with your friends and you're all smiling. Oh, that's the photo I'll put up. Your life might be completely rubbish, but I will present that image because I'm frightened you might think otherwise. You might think that I'm a loser. We are free from accusation. So what? If you think I'm a loser, so what? The point is, they all went out. One by one, because they're all sinners. Everybody is a loser in that sense. And one thing I like in verse 9, Jesus was left alone with the woman, with her still standing in the middle. How can you be left alone when you're in the middle of a bunch of people? Because they're in the temple where the, when this happens. And these Jews, and these Pharisees, had come in dragging this poor woman, and said, hey, Jesus, come here. Like, give your judgment on this case. And of course, everyone was listening. I mean, it's sex. It's adultery. Someone was caught in adultery. Oh, wow. You know, everyone's immediately interested. Human, you know, human nature. Oh, so there's all these people standing around. And she is in the midst of them with these Pharisees. But the Pharisees all go out. But... The crowd is still there, and her and Jesus are left, Jesus was left alone with the woman in the midst of the people. So don't you get it? You can be in the midst of society. You can be living in a family, maybe. You can be in a workplace. You can be in a church. It may be a great church or not a functional church. No matter. You can be in a society, no matter how big your little family is or how small, it doesn't matter. But you are still alone with Jesus. And that is all that matters. That's why I like it. That Jesus was left alone with the woman in the midst. It's all the people around. But Jesus is left alone with the woman. And this is the art of what it is to be a Christian. To have that personal relationship. Well, as I say, when you've got a big group around you of supportive people in a functional church or in a functional family or whether you're out basically not like that. You're surrounded by unhelpful people, by people who don't believe. Whatever. You are alone with Jesus. And this is where you can stand, if necessary, with your back to the world. 
Even if everybody thinks you're weird, thinks you're a loser, thinks you're not great, okay, okay. I am with him. And it is in a human sense how it is if you're in a good relationship. Like I am with Cindy. If you not turn against me and say I'm a bad guy or whatever, okay, that's what you think. I ain't coming to your church no more. Okay, I've got Cindy. And I can stand with my back to you guys, back to the world, because I've got her. And it's the same with, with Jesus. That, well, even more so. That if you've got him, you know, we can face tomorrow as the song was played on the playlist. You know? Life is worth the living because he lives. Because we are with him. And this is the great truth of God with us. Emmanuel. Man is not alone. We are not alone. Judged by, you know, whatever is around us. So, he says to her, where are your accusers? Did nobody condemn you? No, they all, bunch of sinners, bunch of losers themselves. They all left. Okay. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And I'm saying this is quoted about, uh, about us. When Paul says, who is he that accuses? Who is he that can lay anything to the charge of God's elect, God's chosen? Nobody can accuse you. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is alluding to what the Lord says here, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. Go walk away. This woman would have walked through this crowd of inquisitive nosy people, you know, people like sex or anything, scandal, you know, it just walks through the midst of it. But he says, from this time forward, sin no more. Well, you think, did this woman sin? Yeah, she did. Um, but it seems to me from the get-go with the whole nature of this, that this was a setup. She was set up to some degree. Um, and you sort of feel sorry for her. Okay, the Lord says sin no more. So, right, there's an element of sin there. Uh, but you also think, well, yeah, but that wasn't the full story. Uh, we don't know what the full story was, but, you know, you read the story several times over. You shouldn't want me to sit down as a chair for you, right? <laughs> Um, as you read and read, read all this, you, you start to have questions. I mean, what I do when I study the Bible, I take something like this, and I read it, and I reread it, and I play it on audio when I'm driving or going around the house, and I think about it, and I pray about it. And as I was reading all this many times over, I thought, yeah, she did sin if he says sin no more. But there was, there, obviously, there, there was something funny here. There was some sort of setup. Uh, she was set up on this. And the point is that whatever degree of guilt she had, maybe it wasn't as big as it might seem, but all the same she was guilty. The whole thing is dealt with in Jesus. And I was thinking again about the parables of the uh, pub church in, uh, in Australia. Uh, I preached again on the parables of the lost, where there's a lost coin, and the woman searches for the coin until she finds it, there's the lost sheep, where the sheep goes off, and then the shepherd goes and finds it. And then there's the lost son, who goes off into the world and spends his father's money on whores and gambling and, and the lot. 
And you put those three parables together. The lost coin. It's not the fault of the coin that it gets lost. That's not the coin's fault. When you come to the sheep, did the sheep sin by going off and getting lost? I would say not really. I would say that was unwisdom. Unwisdom. And it is the nature of sheep to get lost. It's what sheep do. Did the prodigal son sin? Yes, he did. Definitely, consciously did. But in those three stories, you see the whole spectrum of human lostness. From the coin that, well, it's not his fault. It's fault that he got lost. The sheep that got lost was a bit small. Yeah, pretty stupid. But sheep are stupid. And that's what happens. But it wasn't a sin. Prodigal son, yeah, he, he sinned. And I think it's the same with us. There's an element of stuff in our lives which is our human lostness, just because I'm human. And is it a sin? might look like a sin to you or to the world. It might look like a sin to me. But it's just part of our lostness. It's what sheep do. But then there's our actual sin. Well, come on. Let's admit it. We all sin. It's not a, not a man or woman sitting here who doesn't do sins. But we all sin. The whole point is that the whole spectrum, whether it's actually not a sin but it looks like one, or whether it's, well, not quite a sin but lack of wisdom, or whether it's actual sin, the whole spectrum is dealt with. And it's the same with this woman. As you read and read this, you think, this was a setup. She was being abused in some form, I would imagine. But there was an element of failure. Because he says, sin no more. Now, the point is, so look, I do not condemn you. I'm deaf, I'm deaf to all the accusations. All these guys say, we caught this woman red-handed. We found her at 2.43am doing this, that, and the other. And there's a crowd of people saying, oh, really? Oh, wow. And the Lord's saying, I'm deaf. I'm not interested. I'm deaf to all that. You know a bunch of sinners anyway, so you can't accuse anybody. I am the only one without sin, and I don't condemn you. So this then is, that woman then is a picture for all of us. Now, I said that he's going to go on to talk uh, generally to the Jews, but what he says is all linking back to this incident with the woman. He says, I'm the light of the world. Well, I said this whole incident starts with Jesus coming to the temple at dawn, that this whole thing happened at daybreak. And he says, I'm the light of the world. And that's why I think he must have written some of their sins in the dust. You know, ben, Benjamin or Binyamin equals Rivka, and the bloke thinks, oh, hang, <laughs> Jesus knows all my sins, I'd better get out of here, in case things might get embarrassing. And he says, I'm the light of the world. I, I see it all. And then he says, verse 15, you judge after the flesh. You think that because you caught a woman committing adultery, uh, therefore she's going to die. Well, you judge after the flesh. I judge no one, but if I do judge, my judgment is truth. Well, what was his judgment? His judgment was, I don't condemn you. I understand you did this, but I don't condemn you. And he basically says quite often that I, I'm a saviour. 
And I'm here to say, that's what I like doing. It's not that uh, I came here to judge. Well, okay, I do judge. I have to. But I am, I'm a savior. And we all worry in our weakness at times about our status with God and with Jesus. You don't need to. Because I know it's human to do so. And it's, I suppose, right. That mere mortal man does quake in his boots sometimes before God. That's not a bad thing. Just don't live like it all the time. Are we miserable sinners? No, they don't live like that. But the point is that his judgment is the ultimate truth. And his judgment was, I'm deaf to it all. I'm alone with you, with this woman. I know there's all these people crowded around us, but it's just you and me. I'm blind to all that, and I'm deaf to all the opinion of this world. I have just justified you. You have no accusers. My judgment is truth, and it is that you're saved. And then it says, verse 19, I'm going away, and you will die in your sins. I've got many things to speak and judge about you. Well, he's written a few of them in the dust. The names, I suggest, of the women that they had slept with. And of course, he was writing in the dust, and it's very easy to just brush it out. It was just written in the dust. He could just brush it. Uh, which I think just shows how easy it is for him to forgive sin. Yeah, he wrote the names of the women they'd slept with, but with just one brush of his foot, the dust could have settled. And as he spoke these things, verse 29, many people believed him. There was a kind of credibility to him. When he said, I'm the only one around here who can condemn you, and I will not do that. And I'm deaf to everyone else's accusations. And people believed in him. There was something in him that was so credible that you knew this is the truth. And so it is. Even through the 2,000 years that have passed since he was on the earth, even through, as it were, the black print on the white paper of the Bible, somehow something of that personality comes through to us. Where two or three gathered like we are, there he is in the midst. But there he is, absolutely. And then Jesus says to those who believed him, 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that, well, I know the right theology? That's how, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they love this verse. They want to argue with you about all these doctrinal points. And you say, well, what, what exactly is the purpose of this? Oh, because I've got to know the truth, and if you know the truth, it will make you free. Well, I know Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, who are in serious addiction issues, and have got whole loads of stuff in their lives that they're not free. They're not very free people. And yet they say, oh, I know the truth, and the truth has set me free. Really? It's not theology. That's just not true to observed experience. But no matter what intellectual truth you have, that does not of itself make anybody free. The truth in the context is this woman, when he says, go, go your way, you're free. 
I've pardoned you. Nobody else can condemn you. I'm the only person who can condemn you. I'm not going to do that because I'm a saviour. You are. You have no accusers. You are not condemned. Just go in peace. And he's just said, and my judgment is the truth. That my justification of this woman, that is the final truth. And then he says, you shall know, experience the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, Gospel of John is um, written in Greek, but you, you can see that behind it is somebody thinking in Hebrew. These guys, John, all of them, the Jews, not, not Greeks. And to know in Hebrew. Like in English when you say I know something, it means I've got the academic sort of knowledge up here in my brain. But in Hebrew to know someone is to have a relationship with them, to experience something. It's like in the old English in the King James. It says, for example, that Adam knew Eve his wife, and they had a child. Well, a man knows a woman and they have a child. What it means pretty clearly is they had a relationship. That is what it is to know. You know a man knows woman and voila, there is the child. Well, yes, they had a relationship. Simple as that. And so he says, you shall know, you shall experience the truth. And the truth will make you free. So if you are set free from fear of everybody else's opinion, accusation, whatever, and you are pardoned and you are assured of salvation, you are free indeed. And that is why he says in verse 36, if therefore the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed. Now, the name of the game in this world is to get as much money and health and wealth so that you can be free. So I, yeah, so you have a huge pension. That's the, that's the game in this world. So that you can be free to go and do what you want. And you've got the health to go and do what you want. That's what they call freedom. But that is not actually freedom. As he says, everyone who commits sin is a servant of sin. So that's not freedom. That's the idea uh, that the world has of freedom. But Jesus says if the Son, that's him, will make you free, you will be free indeed. The real freedom is not the freedom to do as you want. You know, people say, I want to be in an open relationship and I can do what I want. I want to have as much money as I can, uh, you know, as anyone can dream of so that I can buy whatever I want. So I can go down the shopping centre and just choose what I want. Is that freedom? <laughs> Freedom to buy and drink as much alcohol as you want? Where's that going to lead you? Freedom to buy whatever drugs you want? Is that going to give you freedom? No. Freedom to be in an open relationship and sleep with who you want? Is that going to give you a happy life? No. It's not. Are you laughing? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> This is church in a pub, anyway, not church in a cathedral, mate. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm saying it's true, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he's going to stand up and say, no, no, no. If only I had enough money to buy all the alcohol in the world and to have as many open relationships as I want with as many open people as I want. Yeah, I'm having a great life. And you know what? Why not? Why not? 
The simple truth that he told that woman, I do not condemn you. You are free from all your accusers. But nobody wanted to, well, the Jews didn't want to believe that. And he says, which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe? He said to the woman, right back at the start of all this, verse 10, where are your accusers? Did nobody condemn you? Did nobody convict you? And she says, no, Lord. Nobody convicted her. Nobody condemned her. And at the end of it all, Jesus says, and which of you can convict me of sin? Nobody. You see the parallel between Jesus and the woman. No one can convict Jesus of sin. If Jesus stands in the court and people come up with all their accusations, no, they're not true. He never sinned. And he says to the woman, who convicted you of sin? Nobody convicts me of sin, she said. And the passage finishes with him saying, yeah, nobody convicts me of sin either. You see the connection? The idea is that his status, his holiness, as someone who never sinned, as someone who could not be convicted of sin, he gives that status to this woman who has, after all, been caught in the act of adultery. Red hot. I mean hot. You know what I'm saying. Whether she was red hot or not, that's another story. But, but the point is that, that she was caught, you know, red-handed, is what I meant to say, red-handed. So, <clears throat> this is a thing. As Paul would put it, righteousness is imputed to us. When you baptize into Jesus, go under the water like death with Jesus, come out of the water like resurrection with Jesus, and he counts you as righteous. His righteousness is counted to you. No one can convict Jesus of sin. No one can convict you of sin. You are him and he is you. A man is not alone, ever again. So we're going to take the bread and the uh, juice in memory of the Lord. Could we start uh, handing it out? Because all this is possible. Because he died. Because he died and rose again. And this bread represents his body, the cup represents his blood. Because he died and rose again, we can also. Because I live, you shall live also. Thank you. So we're going to give thanks when everyone's got their piece of bread. So that the bread represents the Lord's body. Uh, Kevin, while you're on your feet, would you like to give thanks to the bread? Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we want to thank you for today as we come together in fellowship, as we take and partake of the bread and the wine. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will bless it right now. Lord, bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So the cup represents his blood, which was poured out for us, and no man has made a love from this, for that a man lay down his life for his friends. Um, Spider, would you like to give thanks to the cup? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the privilege and honour that you've bestowed upon us. We can come and drink your blood in remembrance of you. We thank you for this privilege and honour, Father. 
Right, well, I do believe that the uh, chicken and beef will finally appear. So let's just give thanks for that before it does. Uh, Sean, would you like to give us a prayer of thanks for the food? Yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the food that is coming forth to us today. Just bless the week ahead, Lord, everybody in this church. We follow you, Lord. We give your life to you, Lord. We are shouting your name, Lord, in your name, Jesus. Everybody in this room today, say amen. 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 amen.